Welcome back to our series of audio lessons on the book of Esther. Today, we'll finish our series with chapters 9 and 10. Before we get into these, let's take a quick look back at what's happened so far. Haman, the enemy of the Jews, is dead, hoisted on his own petard, well, at least on his own gallows, for his plan to kill all the Jews in his supposed assault on the queen. Esther reveals to Xerxes her relationship with Mordecai, cousin, yes, but more, adopted father, advisor, protector. Based on whatever she said, Mordecai is summoned before the king. He is made grand vizier in the place of Haman, given the king's signet ring as a symbol of authority, and dressed in royal robes and a crown. Where there had been confusion and distress with Haman's decree, now there is gladness and joy. Esther is given all of Haman's possessions, and, in turn, she places Mordecai over them. The man who sought to kill, to destroy, and to annihilate all the Jews is himself dead. The enrichment he thought he would come to him as a result is now controlled by his nemesis. Well, actually, it's not fair to call Mordecai his nemesis because Mordecai never sought Haman's downfall. He just refused to bow to him. The malice was a one-way street. Haman may be dead, but his evil plan still stands as an unalterable law of the Persians. Esther pleads with the king to annul it, but even he cannot. But all is not lost. There is something that can be done. Issue another decree that the Jews can defend themselves. They can't attack, but they can do whatever it takes, and to any extent they feel necessary, to defend themselves. Now, that leaves the door open for all kinds of actions against the attackers. One version says that they should be ready to take vengeance on those that hated them. The decree is issued throughout the empire on the king's best horses. Now, these may have been the horses for the king's personal use, but that's a lot of horses for one man. More likely, they were bred for the royal cavalry. The King James Version says they were mules and camels. Mordecai's decree is very similar in its language to that of Haman, except for the additional content about the Jews' self-defense measures. Some of the language in Mordecai's decree seems to be offensive in nature, take vengeance and plunder goods. That's probably because the original decree was written from a Persian mindset of aggression and not the Jewish mindset, which tended to be a little more peaceful in nature and less provoked. One more interesting difference between the two decrees. The first was written to all the government officials over all the empire in their own language. The second specifically includes the Jews. Apparently, the first excluded the Jews to keep them in the dark for a surprise attack. At the end of chapter 8, we have, Many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. I don't know if that's to imply or differentiate between the country folk and the city dwellers or mean the entire people empire-wide, probably the latter. Because they feared the Jews, they declared themselves to be Jews. This is fear that is terror and dread, not all. But why fear the Jews if you had no intention of attacking them? They knew there was something special about the Jews. At the end of chapter 6, when Zeresh predicts Haman's fall, it was because Mordecai is of the Jewish people, not because of any ability or political connection he might have. Those who declared themselves Jews didn't want any part of possibly being seen as against the Jews and incurring God's wrath. Let's look at chapter 9. We'll read verses 1 through 4. Now in the twelfth month, 
which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. And all the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. If chapter 8 was a chapter of reversals, chapter 9 contains the greatest reversal of all. The time has come for Haman's plan for the destruction of the Jews to be enacted, posthumously. The day is the 13th of Adar. About six months have passed since Mordecai's edict was distributed, enough time for both sides to prepare. There will be no surprise attack. The author gives his summary. The day when the enemies of the Jews hope to gain mastery over them, other translations have overpower or massacre them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over their enemies. How was this great reversal accomplished? Well, a little strategery, as W would say, a little help from their friends, and especially from the greatest friend of all, God. He's never specifically named, but who can deny his presence? Their strategy. The Jews gathered in their cities. Now, that doesn't mean there were certain cities set apart for the Jews, like the Levites or the cities of refuge. As Haman said in chapter 3, the Jews were intentionally scattered all over the kingdom, usually in small groups, to keep them from assembling and developing a sense of community and purpose. In cities where there was a significant number of Jews, they banded together, you know, strength in numbers. Small groups separately might not be able to withstand the attack, but by gathering several small groups into large ones, they improved their odds. Small numbers of Jews in several small villages might gather into one village. The text says they were to lay hands on those who sought their harm. Again, that sounds kind of like an offensive mood. The idea behind this is that the Jews were not to attack, but once engaged, game on. Lay hands on gives the image of grabbing the opponent and not letting go until he is vanquished. In this case, dead. They were ready for the fight. Then there was a little help from their friends. Government officials throughout the empire helped the Jews. What kind of help is unspecified? Maybe weapons, maybe intelligence, maybe actually fighting with them. One author suggested that since the helpers were not under the self-defense restriction, that they took offensive measures against the Jews' enemies. Why did they help the Jews and not just stay out of it? Two ideas here. First, Two very contradictory decrees have been issued. Kill all the Jews, the Jews can defend themselves. It's possible that when faced with the choice of which decree to obey, they chose the latter, it was the most recent, and they helped the Jews. But even then, they could have remained neutral, which leads to the second idea. And we may find the answer in verse 3. For the fear of Mordecai had fallen upon them. Again, this is terror, not awe. Verse 4 speaks to the greatness he had achieved within the palace and how his fame and power had spread throughout the provinces, and he had only been Grand Vizier for about nine months. No one wanted to do anything contrary to Mordecai, so they went with decree number two and even helped 
even when it was not called for. If Haman had still been in charge, they likely would have joined in the attack on the Jews, especially since plundering of goods was allowed. And finally, a little help from the greatest friend of all. Once it all began, the enemies could not withstand the Jews. Some say that was because of the help of the military, but not so. Verse 2 gives the reason. For the fear of them, that is the Jews, had fallen on all the peoples. They were in terror of the Jews. The same response is seen in Judges during the conquest. At Jericho, the city had heard all that God had done for the Israelites, from the parting of the Red Sea when they came up out of Egypt to the defeat of the Amorite kings. Rahab said that the fear of you, again, that's the Jews, had fallen on us, and when we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in us. You can imagine the same thing happening here. There was a decree to kill the Jews, and despite the second decree for allowing self-defense, some proceeded, but maybe they just didn't have the same enthusiastic form anymore. Let's look at verses 5 through 10. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also Parsandatha and Dalphon and Aspatha, and Poratha, and Adalia, and Eridatha, and Permashta, and Ersai, and Eridai, and Dalzatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hands on the plunder. The Jews struck. Again, that sounds like an offensive move, and perhaps some did. But it was the response of being attacked. The New American Standard says defeated their enemies, and that's probably more accurate. They did as they pleased to those who hated them. I don't think this is throwing away all restraint and attacking. In the context of self-defense, once attacked, they did not hesitate to destroy the enemy by any means necessary. Self-defense was a very effective. 500 were killed in Susa, the citadel. Three things here. First, many believe the body count was overestimated, and we'll address this later. However, in one Babylonian's transcript, the body count of the battles is very precise. The king was careful to keep apprised of both his and his enemy's losses. It is doubtful that this is an exaggeration. Second, this is in the citadel, also called the upper city. If you remember the description of Susa, to the south from the palace across a small valley was a small hill, about a hundred acres in size. Excavations there revealed buildings, mostly houses, reaching across the valley and onto the slopes of the palace complex. Many people would have lived there, perhaps a high concentration of Jews, maybe even Mordecai. The king's gate was not far from this area. And it was in a site of an attack. Why attack there if there's no Jews? And the attack resulted in 500 men being killed, presumably only of the enemy. There's no mention of Jewish losses. Other mentions of Susa in this chapter omit the citadel, implying the part of the city that's east of the palace complex called the, the artisan city or the craftsman city, or more likely, the lower city. Third, the Chaldee paraphrase says only Amalekites took up arms against the Jews. This is doubtful. It's probably an insertion meant to emphasize that only Haman's allies were involved, not the whole of Susa. That is, only Amalekites hated the Jews. The Chaldee paraphrase is a paraphrase of the Hebrew Old Testament dating from the time of Ezra, 
written in Chaldean Aramaic. In Nehemiah 8, when Ezra read the law to the people, the Levites helped the people to understand the law. This would have been something like a paraphrase. During the action on the 13th of Adar, the ten sons of Haman were among those killed. They were obviously following in their dad's footsteps and involved in attack on the Jews. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I get to a long list of names in the Bible, especially Old Testament names, I sometimes just kind of glass over them. That's not to say they aren't important. I just have a hard time pronouncing them. The inclusion of the sons' names is interesting. It gives the credence to the Esther being a true story and not a fiction, as some critics suggest. The exact names were recorded by someone closely associated with the events. Where would they get the names if the story was untrue? This is also seen with the naming of the eunuchs and the advisors back in chapter 1. The sons' names are Persian origin, that's not surprising, but commentators are divided on the meanings of the names. Throughout the Old Testament, we see names given to children that have meaning to them. Isaac means laughing, Esau means red. Other cultures were no different. Our culture is no different. My sister's name was Sherry. That's the anglicized version of the French word Sherry, meaning a dear one. And in my grandmother's generation, it was all the rage to name the girls after plants or flowers. Hence, my grandmother's name Ivy and her sister Violet. One commentator says that they were all related to Persian gods or demons. One says that in each name there is a reflexive connotation, meaning that Haman named his sons after some quality, strength, bravery, etc., which supposedly reflected a characteristic Haman thought in himself. I am strong, I am brave, etc. However, several Jewish rabbinical websites dispute this, noting that there's no participle in any of the names that would suggest this is a correct interpretation. And, one author gives completely different meanings to the names than the others. The bottom line is, we just don't know. The writer of Esther is quick to point out that while Mordecai's decree allowed the plundering of the enemy, the Jews did not. A fact he repeats twice more in this chapter. The Jews did not kill to enrich themselves. They saw it purely as a defensive war to preserve their nation. Let's look at verses 11 through 15. On the very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed five hundred men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hand on the plunder. The casualty reports have come in, and Xerxes is astonished. Five hundred dead in the citadel alone. How many more throughout the whole empire? The decree had allowed the destruction of the enemy's entire family, yet no mention of women or children in the body count. While the killing of the entire family was the norm and required in Haman's decree, to do so here would have been a violation of the self-defense restriction, unless they attacked first. And I wouldn't expect women and children being involved in the attack. The Chaldee paraphrase says that Zeresh and Seventy 
of Haman's children escaped, but all died in poverty, living as beggars all their lives. It's hard to figure out Xerxes' tone in his question to Esther. Some say it's one of admiration. Oh, you people really did a good job out there. Others say it's of disbelief. It's so decisive. What else could you want? Name it, and it's yours. Well, there is something else. Let this go on for another day. In Susa only, not enough time to issue an empire-wide edict, and hang Haman's ten sons on the gallows. Some have criticized Esther for this request, claiming she displayed a certain bloodthirstiness or had no compassion or mercy. However, a look at the text shows that this was prompted by Xerxes in verse 12. It says, Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. That sounds like Xerxes was expecting something else. One suggested this may have been a tone of sarcasm. The answer to this falls in three possible categories. Some suggest that Esther was prompted by a report from Mordecai. He, being the Grand Vizier, had intelligence that there remained a a pocket of enemies still within the city intending an unauthorized attack at some future date. They needed to be dealt with in order to ensure the Jews' safety. Another says she displayed the same principle found so often in Jewish history, settling for nothing less than complete victory. And another answer is given by Charles Spurgeon in his commentary. Now it was God's intent that a last conflict should take place between Israel and Amalek. The conflict which began with Joshua in the desert was to be finished by Mordecai and the king's palace. This was the fulfillment of God's command to Saul almost 600 years earlier to utterly destroy the Amalekites. But why, when they were already dead, hang Haman's sons on the gallows? This is the ultimate deterrent and an example of what happens to you when you displease the king. During the Purim celebration today, as the reading of Esther comes to this point, the reader takes a deep breath and reads Haman's sons' names in one breath, adding ten at the end for emphasis, because they all died together. The Masoretic text requires them to be written vertically on the right side of the page, with and written on the left, reflecting the tradition that they were all hung on the same gallows, possibly the same one on which Haman was hung, and they were hung on top of one another kind of like a vertical shish kebab. The request is granted, and the killing of another 300 men occurs on the 14th of Adar. This time, Susa is mentioned without the citadel, possibly referring to the lower city. Again, it might sound like an offensive move. Possibly the Jews knew of others remaining in the lower city. One author suggested the Jews gathered at a single location in the lower city and waited for the attack, possibly goading the attackers. And once attacked killed an additional 300 men. For the second time, the author notes, there was no plundering of the attackers. Let's look at verses 16 through 19. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, And on the fourteenth day they rested and made that day a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the thirteenth day and on the fourteenth and rested on the fifteenth day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages, who lived in the rural towns, 
hold the fourteenth day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day which they send gifts of food to one another. Now we have the summary of the day's events. The Jews got relief from their enemies by killing 75,000 empire-wide. The Septuagint says only 15,000. The 75,000 number is probably more correct. When you consider the vastness of the empire, 2.1 million square miles, in comparison, the U.S. lower 48 is 3.1 million square miles, and that the Persian officials helped the Jews, possibly with weapons and troops, 75,000 is a credible number. In Susa, a major city, 800 were killed. There were 94 major cities throughout the empire. If those cities had the same kill ratio, the body count would have been about 75,000. All in one day in the provinces, the 13th of Adar, plus an additional day in Susa, the 13th and 14th of Adar. And for the third time, they took no plunder. It appears from verses 17 through 19 that Jews held spontaneous celebrations, both in Susa and in the provinces. It was marked with feasting and gladness and giving of gifts, just like Purim would be celebrated later. Let's finish the chapter, beginning in verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and also the fifteenth day of the same, year by year, as days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days of sending gifts of food to one another, and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do, and what Mordecai had written for them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast pur, that is, lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that this evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they call these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and what they had faced in this matter, or what happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed every year, and that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and the days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai, the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. The letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of King Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to fasts and their lamenting. The command to Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. The Esther narrative is now complete, and now the author turns to the rest of the story mode. I'll admit I'm a little unsure about exactly what's going on here. 
I read seven different translations, consulted close to a dozen commentaries, trying to figure this out. And here's my best understanding of verses 20 through 32. It appears the Jews in both Susa and the provinces had already begun celebrations spontaneously in verses 17 through 18, immediately after their victories, and in verse 23, what they had started to do. The problem was the provincial Jews were celebrating on the 14th of Adar and those in Susa on the 15th, because those were the days after their respective victories. It sounds like both groups wanted to celebrate the day of their victory. By this time, these celebrations may have been on the first or maybe even the second anniversary. They would have celebrated the day of their respective victories, and now, one or two years later, word is gotten back to Mordecai that the provincial Jews are celebrating a different day. Mordecai sends them letters telling them to celebrate both days, presuming not wanting to offend either group. Plus, why have a one-day celebration when you can have a two-day celebration? What Mordecai had written to them in verse 20, sent letters, is this letter in verse 26, I believe. The content of the letter is summarized in verses 24 through 26. This is the why behind the celebration and the name Purim. Pur is the Persian word for the lots cast by Haman for the destruction of the Jews, and the Hebrew plural suffix im has been added, indicating both days were to be celebrated. One author suggests that the name Purim was kind of a in-your-face to Haman. You cast the Pur to kill us, now we celebrate that day as a day of deliverance. Because of Mordecai's letter and all that they had experienced, this was accepted. It wasn't just accepted. Three times the text says they obligated themselves and their ancestors to keeping the Purim celebration. Once it said that that should never fall in disuse, and once it said they should never cease to celebrate. And not just the ethnic Jews, but anyone who joined them, proselytes, those who declared themselves to be Jews, all the Jews everywhere. It was universal and perpetual. The ESV has in verse 27, they, without fail, would observe Purim. This phrase carries a connotation that isn't easily translated. It means something like irrevocable, just like the Persian laws. It may be that the Jews considered Mordecai's letter as just a suggestion, so Queen Esther gets in on the action. She issues a joint letter with Mordecai, giving royal authority for the celebration. However, there still appears to be a difference in how each group is celebrating. The original celebrations including feasting and gladness and giving of gifts, but now some are including fasting and lamentations. No problem. Include those as well. In Purim celebrations today, the event begins the night before with a fast, called Esther's Fast, and lamentations are recited. The book of Esther is read both that evening and the next morning, along with what's called redemption passages, showing Mordecai's progression in the kingdom. The first is in chapter 2, verse 5, at our introduction to Mordecai. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. The next is in chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. This is Mordecai's promotion to grand vizier. Then Mordecai went out for the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. 
And the last is the last verse of the book, chapter 10, verse 3, explaining the benefit Mordecai brought to both the people of Persia and the Jews. For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and as great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. There are also three prayers offered. The first, praising God for counting them worthy of attending the festival. The second, thanking God for the miraculous preservation of their ancestors. And third, praising God that they had lived to observe another festival. Let's finish the book with chapter 10. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all the people. This chapter serves as an epilogue to the book. The author cannot close the book without one last tribute to Mordecai. One commentator said the book could have easily been titled The Book of Mordecai. He starts out by telling of the power of Xerxes, one who controlled the vast empire from India to Ethiopia to Libya to Greece to Central Asia. He levied taxes. He who has the power to tax has control. He does this to imply the power Mordecai wielded as second to the king. In chapter 2, verse 8, when we are first introduced to Mordecai, he is identified only as a Jew. At the end, he is still referred to as the Jew. No great title attached. He didn't use his position for self-advancement, riches, or cronyism. He is popular among not only the Jews, but all in the kingdom because he sought the welfare of the people and spoke peace to all his people. One ancient document says that in the last two years of Xerxes' reign, his uncle, Artabanes, became the king's favorite counselor. This is the same guy in chapter 1, verse 14, called Adbendatha. Possibly Mordecai had died. Xerxes was assassinated about ten years later in 464 B.C., and Artaxerxes, his son, took the throne. One source that says that Vashti came back to court as queen mother. Since Esther was not his mother, she would have been removed from court, possibly living in a smaller palace in Susa or in one of the far reaches of the empire. It's possible that any children she might have had would have probably been killed. There would be no rivals to the throne. We've read many times about the book The Chronicles of the Kings. No trace of this book has ever been found. All we know of Xerxes comes from contemporary Greek writers, especially Herodotus. Yet, God's book of Esther has survived nearly 2,500 years and counting. Esther, the story of a Jewish girl who became queen and saved her people. It's the explanation for the Feast of Purim. If that's the total of your understanding of this story, you miss a lot. You miss the providence and protection God has for his people. You miss God's working in the background and the lives of his people using little coincidences that just happened to bring about his plan. Matthew Henry in his commentary said, If the name of God is not here, his finger is. You miss an example of unshakable faith that God's will be done regardless of how dire the circumstances may be. 
Mordecai said to Esther, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. You miss the understanding that we all have a purpose in our lives to fulfill before God. Who knows whether you have been brought to this place and this time to... You fill in your own blank. You miss the call of personal responsibility to do what's right, regardless of the consequences. Esther said, I will go to the king, and if I die, I die. And it's the story that relates the absurdity of wickedness. Haman plotted to kill the Jews because Mordecai would not bow to him. His grand plan came back on his own head, and you just can't help but laugh. Well, that concludes our study of the book of Esther. I hope you've enjoyed it just as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Until next time, may God bless you.